And as you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, let me ask you to ponder a question. What would happen in Albuquerque if in a relatively short period of time, a lot of people became Christians? And I don't mean they would just check that box on a survey, Christian, but they would be genuine, transformed Christians. What would Albuquerque look like if thousands more began to follow Christ with vigor? What effect would it have, if any, on the broader culture, on society, and even on the economy if there were more Christians in our town? Well, I'm loving how the book of Acts will not allow us to stay in neat, tidy categories. It will not let us make simple and easy conclusions about how to apply this book. I'm loving that just when you think you've learned one thing from a scene in the book of Acts, you turn the page and the next pulls you or stretches you in a slightly different direction. They're not in conflict, but there is compliment. Recall how back a couple of weeks ago, we applied chapter 17. In one message, a point of application was that we should give people the word. We should give the Bible to non-Christians. We should, we should give them the gospel with the Bible in its Bible form. That was Paul in Berea. But then the next week, we saw Paul in Areopagus amidst the cultural pagan elite. And he doesn't quote Bible. He, he quotes poets, secular poets, he goes from worldview and whittles his way down, eventually getting to Jesus and the coming judgment. Or recall how last week I pointed out that in Acts there is this word-centeredness or gospel-centeredness to the mission. The mission isn't about simply going into a city to have some influence or even to change culture. But then this week, we're going to see that that word, that gospel, when it really begins to take root and spread among a large number of people, it actually has some socioeconomic implications, for better or worse. The gospel changes people from the inside out, and the out part of that change, well, it reverberates. It continues to ripple. If enough people in a city are changed by the gospel, the whole city can feel it. They should see it. So while there's still a word-centeredness and a gospel-centeredness to how individuals are changed by Jesus, when they're changed by Jesus, if enough of them are changed in a short amount of time, there will be cultural and socioeconomic effects. The gospel is that powerful. So let's see the gospel at work in a city called Ephesus. Chapter 19, starting in verse 8, I'll read the whole rest of the chapter. It'll take about five minutes to read, 
And it might be the best five minutes of your week. Chapter 19, verse 8, And he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had been touched by his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city, of the, uh, the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the, co- the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that can give to justify, that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Well, let me suggest five parts to this reading, five P's to help us think through it. First, there's the proclamation of the gospel in verses 8 to 10. It's very similar to many paragraphs in the book of Acts. Paul usually does this thing in a new city. This is his MO. This is his first play on the field in a new city to go to the Jewish synagogues where the Bible is welcomed where the Hebrew scriptures are read and where he can easily make a line towards Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the gospel, salvation. What's unusual about this description, though, is that Paul had an unusually long opportunity with this specific synagogue. Three whole months he was teaching the gospel in a synagogue. He was speaking boldly, it says, reasoning and persuading. So he was apparently having some success as he talked about the kingdom of God, it says, or the way that is the way of Jesus. As good as it was, as long as it was, this too came to an end. The gospel just keeps having this kind of twofold response in the book of Acts. Some believe, some resist and oppose. And so some Jews became irritated or stubborn. They spoke evil of the way. And so Paul found some other place. It seems he must have rented a lecture hall in town, the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, ancient historians seem to have a decent idea of what's going on here. All we're told is that Paul lectured daily in the Hall of Tyrannus. What this probably means is that Tyrannus was a philosopher who owned a lecture hall, and he would, as custom was, lecture in the morning when it was cool. Paul probably then would rent the lecture hall in the afternoon when the sun was at its hottest. It's during the off hours. It's available. And there he would lecture to both disciples, that's new Christians, verse 9, and also he would evangelize those who were not yet Christians because, verse 10, all the residents of the area heard the word. And again, he did this daily for two whole years. This is an incredible opportunity. Paul didn't stay this long anywhere else. He stayed a total of three years in the city of Ephesus, 
Second would be the, the city of Corinth where he stayed 18 months. Both are fantastic opportunities compared with other visits he made in other cities. But Ephesus stood head and shoulders above the rest. He could actually write to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus for a while because a wide door for effective work has opened to me. He has to be thinking of that Tyrannus lecture hall in which he freely proclaims the gospel and many hear. So what's this mean for us? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean you should rent a lecture hall. It doesn't necessarily mean you should go to Jewish synagogues and tell them about Jesus. Paul is unique in some ways, but he's an example in many ways. This is a reminder that proclamation has to be made. This is a reminder that the Lord opens some doors and closes others. We shouldn't be surprised when one door is closed. We should be looking for new open doors, whatever those open doors would be for you. Where the Lord provides open doors and where there's some hope of fruit, stay. In fact, it's worth your expense and it's worth your effort. Paul rented a lecture hall. And Paul taught in the heat of the midday daily for two years. This is the proclamation of the gospel. Secondly, there's the power of the gospel in verses 11 to 20. Verses 11 to 20 have to do with power. There's real power and counterfeit power. There's power which heals bodies and power which transforms hearts. Let's start with God's power through Paul in these extraordinary miracles, it says, verse 11, of healing. Remember how in Mark 5, a sick woman wanted to touch the helm of Jesus' robe, thinking that would save her? And it did. It's not that that robe had special healing powers. It's that God, in his kindness, allowed that expression of faith to be honored with healing. Remember how in Acts chapter 5, people wanted to bring their sick friends down the street in case Peter's shadow would touch them and they would be healed. Again, Peter's shadow has no power, no properties of itself. But God chose to bless, perhaps even you could say that weak expression of faith, in order to, to show his kindness and his greatness, those kind of healings, even among the healings of the Bible, they're not the norm, but God can do it. God can heal through a robe, God can heal in a shadow, and God can heal here with Paul's handkerchiefs and apron. Remember, he's a tent maker, and so when he's working on tents... He's got a rag maybe to wipe his forehead from the sweat, and he's got an apron to keep his clothes otherwise as clean as possible. And someone gets the idea, hey, Paul, can I take that handkerchief and bring it to my sick grandma? And he says, sure. And God heals that grandma. Imagine that. It's extraordinary. It's not the norm. Luke explicitly tells us that it's extraordinary. As we will see as we go on in this chapter, Ephesus was a city that was filled with religiosity and superstition and the supernatural. And it very well could be that God, 
in a sense, condescended to such a mystical place to make the truly supernatural really stand out. And it stood out for the seven sons of Sceva, they're called. Verse 13, there are itinerant Jewish exorcists who come to town. Now, you've got to get your head around these fellas. Jewish exorcists were not that uncommon in the ancient world. And some of them would have been con men, and some of them would have legitimately faced off against true demonic forces. We can't be certain with these men, though I suspect they were con men. But don't rush that too soon. Let's instead try to be impressed by them like so many were when they came to town and to the next town. They were sons of the high priest, it says. It's probably not the high priest, but, but a high priest or, or one of the priestly family people. They, they are they're aristocracy in the Jewish priesthood. These are seven sons of a high priest or or connected to the priestly family somehow. Seven sons. Imagine that, especially in a culture that wrongly prizes sons above daughters. This guy, Sceva, hit the jackpot with seven sons. And they are exorcists. They are itinerant exorcists. That means they travel about. They are coming to a town near you. Can you feel the excitement? Can you, can, you imagine the, can you imagine the flyers on the telephone poles? No, they're not telephone poles. On the trees that were preceding their arrival. Can, can, can you hear the, the t-shirt cannon when the sons of Sceva show up and shoot off t-shirts with sons of Sceva on the front? I can. This was a big deal. And no doubt, whenever they came to a new town, they adopted some shtick that would be useful in particular to that town. They got to Ephesus, and they heard a buzz about Jesus and people being healed by a man named Paul in the name of Jesus. And so they, they try it. Verse 13, I adjure you, they say to a demon, by the Jesus that Paul proclaims. But Jesus is not a magical formula. Jesus will not be anyone's lucky rabbit's foot. Jesus means nothing on the lips of hucksters like these. And the demon knows that. The demon speaks volumes in verse 15 when it says, I know Jesus, I recognize Paul, but who are you? And then the man in which this demon resided leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so they fled out naked and wounded. It's almost like a, an inverse of the story in, in Luke 8. I think it's also in Mark 3. The demoniac who had a legion of demons in him, and before he was healed, he was naked and beaten and terrifying the village, Jesus overpowered that legion of demons and freed that man. At the end of the story, he was healed, he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. And the people of the village were then more afraid. 
They weren't afraid of a man who's now all cleaned up, nor of the demons who left. They're afraid of the one who can command these demons with merely a word. And in Acts 19, you got some of the same elements, but it's sort of flipped around. You got these seven sons of Sceva who are no match for one demon. At the end, they were beaten and naked, and the city of Ephesus was fearful. Not of the demon, certainly not of the sons of Sceva, but of the name that did have power over demons when Paul spoke it, and that name that would not be controlled or manipulated by these so-called exorcists. And so the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, we're told, verse 17. There is an unseen spiritual realm. Scripture doesn't give us all the details far from it. It only gives us little peaks into this unseen realm. Where there are things such as angels and demons. Demons are powerful. Just ask these seven sons of Sceva. But Jesus is infinitely more powerful. When he chooses to cast out a demon, that's it. It's done. When he chooses to heal, it's nothing for him. Even a rag can heal someone if he chooses to do the extraordinary. But his name can't be adopted like some sort of incantation. He is no magical formula. He will not serve your superstitions. A gold cross around your neck doesn't chase away evil spirits. The portrait of Jesus hanging in the hall doesn't fend off the devil. And a Bible on your nightstand doesn't keep you safe at night. The problem isn't just that those things don't have any inherent power in themselves, but that God hates when we trust in such things, good things, in mystical ways. You see this so clearly in 1 Samuel 4, when Israel is about to go into battle once again with the Philistines. They've just lost 3,000 of their men. They're scared. They're looking for help. Someone says, let's get the Ark of the Covenant, which wouldn't be a bad thing, except they relay what they're really trusting in when they say that it may go ahead of us in battle and fight our battles for us. It? No, he The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. They got the focus off, didn't they? We've got to be careful that something that represents God doesn't actually replace God. The power of God is real. The power of God exposes imposters. The power of God should result in fear and awe and belief in Jesus And the power of God changes people from the inside out. God is so powerful, he can do more than get rid of a demon from someone or heal an infirmity. He can change them 
and make them more like him. And so in verse 18, we find that some who'd been Christians for some time found in this event with the sons of Sceva a whole new conviction about their past involvement with magic, with the demonic, with, with dark arts. You see, verse 18, they came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who practiced magic arts brought their magic books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word prevailed mightily. Not the sons of Sceva, not the demon, not even the apostle Paul. The word prevailed mightily as it spread to new believers and as that word went deeper in the hearts of those who had already come to believe. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We don't do all our repenting at once. It's not that we should come to the Lord with certain sins hidden back here that we're not going to tell him about and we're going to keep and keep doing. Oh, no, no, we should be honest with the Lord when we come to him for salvation. And we should leave behind what is of the old and, and embrace and follow what is the new. But, but we don't always know that we were holding something back until later. Some old sins die hard. Some new sins creep in and need to be dealt with, even at great expense. 50,000 pieces of silver is somewhere between six and seven million in our dollars today. 137 average annual wages was 20,000 pieces of silver. This is, this is the collection of magic books in the homes of Ephesian Christians until they realize this whole world, this realm, this demonic stuff, this is real. And we have switched sides and we are done with this. Now, don't think what they did was a book burning like you'd see in a Nazi movie. This isn't the kind that totalitarian regimes took part in. For one, notice it's their books, not everyone else's books. It is their books that they are freely choosing to burn. Not in order to rid Ephesus of all of its wickedness as if they could. No, it was a personal decision to publicly renounce their old way of life, which was wicked and satanic. It marked their departure from that which they once prized, that which they trusted in and, and followed. To turn to Christ is to leave something behind. This is the nature of repentance. That word, repentance, or to repent, it simply means this. When we turn to Christ, we had to turn from something. For most of us, it probably wasn't the occult. Though, I, I bet for some in this room, it was. For many others, it, it was greed, or, or power, or sex, or even being good. It's whatever you trusted in. It's whatever you relied upon. I've said before that if we can think of our worldview as kind of like a car that we're driving through life, 
then the gospel is not some accessory that goes on that car. When we become a Christian, it's not like we get a supercharger that gives us more power, or we get seat covers which are more comfy, or we get, we get nice rims which look fancy. Becoming a Christian means getting out of whatever car you've been driving and getting in with Christ. And he's the driver. Thank you, Carrie Underwood. If you don't know what that means, then find someone who looks like they know country music and ask them. Sometimes God is kind to show his power, to reveal himself in his word, for us to make a connection between something he's showing us and what we know about our own lives, or really a, a disconnection. Maybe God is doing that right now with you. Christians continue to repent. They continue to say, I can't believe this is still here. I can't believe this thing, this sin, this habit is still around. It's not of the new life. Maybe you need to metaphorically Burn that today. Just be public about it with someone today. Get rid of it. Thirdly, just briefly, there, is, there are plans for the gospel being made here. Verses 21 to 22. I'll just deal with it briefly. Paul's time in Ephesus is beginning to come to an end. He plans to go to Rome, not for sightseeing, but for the gospel. He must first go to Jerusalem. We know from the epistles that about this time, Paul had been involved in taking up an offering among the churches for the Jerusalem church, which was going through severe trial and famine. He's got to get that financial gift to Jerusalem. He's going to do that, and actually, he's going to get arrested there. And for the rest of the book of Acts, he will be on trial. That's how the book of Acts will end. Paul in Rome, just as he planned but there by trial. And yet the word continues to go forth. As he says in his last letter to Timothy, he says, I may be bound in prison, but the word of God is not bound. Even though God modified his plans, they were all plans for the gospel. Fourthly, there's the problem of the gospel. Before Paul leaves Ephesus, there's a final noteworthy event that Luke records for us in verses 23 to 34. The gospel is a problem for those who reject it and are offended by it. So verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. No little is Luke's favorite way of saying a lot. When he was a child, he must have said, Mother, I will have ice cream. I will have no little ice cream today. That kind of thing. No little disturbance is happening here because a silversmith named Demetrius began to notice that Paul's message and more and more people coming to believe that message was having an adverse effect on the shrine-making business in Ephesus. Here's some background on that. Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis, or Diana, the goddess of nature. While the Greco-Roman world had many gods, some stood out among the others. 
and Artemis was among the top. And while these Greco-Roman gods could be worshipped and acknowledged in many different cities, often the big ones had headquarters in a specific city. So Ephesus is sort of headquarters to Artemis, one of the big gods, the god of nature. And so wherever you lived, if you believed in this goddess, you probably occasionally made, you paid homage you made a, a pilgrimage. You, you went into Ephesus. And there you would go to the temple. You would leave money with Artemis that it might go well with you. And you would pick up a, a little Artemis trinket. A, a little mini shrine that you'd take back to your home. And, and there you could, you could have Artemis in your home in a sense. You could, you could give your sacrifice to Artemis there in your home. It's like a, if you, you go into a nail salon or a Chinese restaurant and there's a miniature Buddha there. It's not the real Buddha. I don't know where the real Buddha is, but, but there's a Buddha there. And there was big money in these miniature Artemises. The Artemis trinking-making business was big enough to employ a whole union of related trades, such as silversmiths. So back to that silversmith, Demetrius. He begins to notice that his pocketbook is being affected by Paul's message and those who embrace it. As they embraced the living God, they turned from their false gods. As they turn from their false gods, they don't need these images, these trinkets. They don't need Artemis covered in gold or silver. So this begins to answer the questions I started to ask us at the beginning. What happens to a city when lots and lots of people in a short span of time turn to Jesus? What effect might it have on a city? What effect might it have in Albuquerque if thousands became Christians in a short amount of time? Would the casinos notice? Would the strip clubs notice? Would the porn industry begin to scratch its collective head about this misnomer on the data and number of clicks that Albuquerque stands out as this place that just took this huge dip. Now, don't misapply this. All this doesn't start with institutional change and then lead to individual personal heart change. No. There's institutional change, legislative change, and that's its own discussion. There is a place, a right place, a needful place, for voting with the unborn in mind. There's a, a proper place to think about how politics and poverty go together. There are laws that are right and more that are needed regarding human trafficking. All that is good and right and Christians should be involved, not just voting. But that's not what Acts 19 is talking about. It doesn't start with institutions, economy, or laws. It starts with the heart. These Christians didn't picket the idol temples. Notice Christians here didn't smash 
the Artemis trinkets. They didn't seek to burn down the temple. They didn't even get on the city council and try to get taxes hiked for these union workers in the temple trades. They simply got saved and started leading the changed lives that Jesus calls us to. But so many of them did it that it was noticeable. It had an effect even on the, con the economy. It starts in individual hearts, but gospel transformation works out. It trickles down. It reverberates. It's wonderful to see. It leaves a mark, you might say. It caused a disturbance. Back to Demetrius again. Notice he riles up his union buddies. He has three concerns. A financial concern, a religious concern, and a civic concern. He tells them, verse 25, this is how we make our wealth. That's financial. He says in verse 27, our God will be counted as nothing. That's a religious concern. We're going to be found stupid and silly and like we've worshipped nothing. And then he says, our God will be deposed of her magnificence. I think that's a concern for civic pride. That's, that's for the honor of Ephesus that they need to protect this religion in the face of Christianity. And the union agrees. They, they start this chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They begin a march. They probably go looking for Paul. They can't find him. And so they find two of Paul's buddies, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they drag them into the theater. A theater which, by the way, you can still see. You can Google it. It's there. Part of it, anyway. It's sat 24,000 people. And so this isn't a small event. We don't know how full it was. But you get the impression that this is a big deal. A lot of the city was there. People are riled up, and they don't even know why they're riled up. Verse 32. There's confusion. The chaotic scene. Paul wants to go in the theater to defend his buddies. Paul's buddies say, no, you can't. They will kill you. A Jewish guy, Alexander's thrown into the mix. He wants to speak, probably to distance himself and his fellow Jews from this Jesus movement. But the rioting crowd lumps him in with the Jesus movement. They shout him down for two hours. They chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Paul would later write to the Corinthians, I wrestled wild beasts at Ephesus. I wonder if he had this scene in mind. Some will oppose Christianity simply because a growing number of people around them oppose Christianity. It's that senseless. It's that kind of mob mentality. Some will oppose Christianity for financial reasons or because of some other idol that Christianity pinches against. Some will oppose Christianity because its message implies that all other gods are no gods at all. In fact, Paul more than implied that. He, he had to state that. He stated that explicitly in Acts 17. We ought not to think that the divine being 
is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And he seems to say the same thing here if Demetrius represents him right. He says, verse 26, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, the Christian has to smile at a sentence like that. It's kind of a, a sad, humorous truth that the gods made with hands are not gods. Of course they're not. They're made with hands for crying out loud. The creature can't make the creator. If a guy can make a god, then he's a god. And who's God? Oh, it's so ridiculous. Remember how Psalm 115, we sometimes sing this. We'll sing it at the end of our service. How it discusses the futility and emptiness and silliness of idols. Silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak. They have eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear. They have a throat but they can't talk. They have arms but they can't move. When they fall over, someone has to pick them up. When they fall over and get broken, someone has to fix them. Those who make them and worship them become like them. Stupid, senseless, useless, mute, deaf, and blind. Acts 19 is a reminder to us that the Christian gospel does have a plus and a minus to it. We do need to say Jesus is the answer and at times we need to say, and that other thing isn't. You've got to be explicit about it. They've got to get out of the car that they've been driving in to get in with Jesus. And saying that to the world will be problematic. However, will there be salvation without it? Will anyone actually ever leave behind specific things that are antithetical to Christ? Or will they simply think of Christ as a bolt-on, an accessory to whatever bad car they've been driving? Now lastly, we come to the posture of the gospel. Verses 35 to 41 at the end here. We could call it the vindication of the gospel, but, but that's not a P word, so that's not going to do. Just kidding. Posture works as well. What happens in these verses is vindication for Christians, but how it gets vindicated speaks to the posture that Christians have with the gospel in the world around them. Enter the town clerk, verse 35. He's not a Christian, but he's a decently reasonable magistrate. And he addresses this ruckus crowd, no doubt, Horse by now, after two hours of chanting. He has four points as he addresses this crowd. Number one, he says in verse 35, our big idol Artemis in her temple, that isn't going anywhere. And he's partly right. What Paul said about the temple didn't mean the temple would disappear. Paul wasn't calling for its destruction. Paul wasn't saying it was going to disappear. He's partly right. He's partly wrong. Who worships Artemis today? 
what's left there today but a shell of part of this temple and people go there simply to marvel at this ancient building not because they worship Artemis his second argument is that the Christian message isn't actually sacrilegious or blasphemous towards their gods well actually here he's wrong it is it's, it's wrong. It's divergent. What Paul said, where gods aren't God, uh, that can't be consistent with what they believe. Paul was, from their angle, blaspheming their gods, but, but perhaps this is a weak leader. Perhaps he's simply trying to keep peace. Perhaps he hasn't understood the nuances of what's involved. Nevertheless, thirdly, he says, if there's a legitimate concern with you silversmith people, well, then the courts are open. Make your case. I think implying that they have no decent legal case against these Christians. And then number four, his big one, he says to this crowd, you guys are the ones who are guilty of disturbing the peace, not these Christians. Rioting is illegal. Christians have done nothing of the sort. You have. You want to argue that these Christians are upsetting the, the Pax Romano, the peace of Rome? It's you who are doing that. You're headed towards a lawless lynching. And so his conclusion is, you ought to be quiet. And verse 41, he dismissed the assembly. That's it. The Christians are vindicated, at least for now. At least this time. It won't always be the case. We know that from the book of Acts. Sometimes it's going to result in beating or imprisonment or death. Sometimes you'll just find that you've got an indifferent magistrate who doesn't want to deal with this right now. Like Gallo a couple weeks ago. Or in this case, a leader who's decently wise reasonable and says this isn't punishable and you guys are causing more trouble than they are Christians in this case were vindicated now sometimes our vindication will have to wait until Jesus is come, until he comes back and sometimes the lord might provide little glimpses of that where even non-christians can speak a word of vindication and if that will ever happen, it will be because they've noticed that we're not actually looking for trouble. It'll be about our posture, I suspect. Our posture toward the world around us isn't one of attack, of harm, or seeking to disrupt. Christians aren't insurrectionists, but they do have a message that upsets the world. And they have to speak it. They didn't come up with the message. It wasn't their idea to speak it. They're ambassadors, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. They're like waiters who carry the food out to the table. But they didn't make the food and they weren't the architects of the menu. Someone else did that and they can't play with the plates. They just got to bring them out. In fact, more than that, they, they also have to represent God as he pleads with people 
Again, Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 5. He's entrusted with us a ministry of reconciliation. And so we implore people. In fact, we, on behalf of Christ, implore you. God is making his appeal through us. And so we can't hold back from not only stating what is the answer, Jesus dying for our sins and risen on the third day. But we also have to say, and everything else isn't quite the answer. It can be true and right and good and not the answer even. It's loving to do that. It's obedient to do it. We must do it, Christians. If you're not a Christian, you're here with us this morning, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you get to hear that we actually are intent on you becoming a Christian. I know, that sounds like uh, it's smug, it sounds unloving, it sounds judgmental, but you know what? The God of the universe tells us that we should, and we think what he thinks is more important than what you think. You shouldn't be surprised by that. And besides, we all want others to believe what we believe. You want us to stop believing what we believe. Yeah, so let's talk, and let's keep talking, and let's see what God will do. We pray, perhaps even today, you'd come to know Jesus savingly, that you would see that his purposes are not to turn over and mess up, but to heal and to make right. He has purposes to fix this world. And he does it one soul at a time. Not so much in superstructures like governments, but in people who have broken wills and broken hearts and broken minds, who are in rebellion against God. And he's in the business of fixing that and working it from the inside out. So Christian, Proclaim the gospel. Don't doubt God's power. Power to heal, sure, but even power to transform in radical and costly ways. Make your plans for the gospel. And don't be surprised when God redirects them. Don't be surprised when some have a problem with the gospel. But don't forget about the proper posture we should have with the gospel in the place God has us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and for your grace. We thank you for revealing to us yourself and your glorious plan to save. Lord, we pray as Christians that we would continue to flee idols, that we would continue to grow in our distrust of that which isn't you. To put our confidence and our affection, our satisfaction more and more in you. As 1 John says at the very end, my little children flee idols. May we flee idols. Help us to see their futility, their emptiness. And help us to see, Lord, how glorious and secure and strong you are. Hopefully you've shown us that in your word today. May we proclaim it as we leave this place. We pray in your strong and saving name, Jesus. Amen.